scripture reading this morning is out of Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, is he, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. May God be a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of the scriptures. Amen. Ask my mom. Y'all know my mom? <laughs> Thanks, mom. You good? I oh, can take it with you. Just don't turn it on when I'm preaching. Got it? Awesome. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name's Nick, in case we haven't had a chance to meet. I got to say, wasn't last weekend something? Last Sunday? Man, that was, a, that was a time together. I just, yeah, thanks for being there and participating. And then I got to walk through the hallways just a little bit during worship and just hearing all the things that are happening, you know, in this conference center on a Sunday morning. And it's just like, I can't believe it. All the cool stuff, the kids and the students, and I just want to say thank you, like really, thank you for all the ways in which you help make that possible, whether that's through volunteering or giving, uh, it just means a lot, and I still, I can't believe we get to do this together, Yeah. Well, I got a word this morning, it is a word, we need to hear it, we're going to need some help hearing it, can we pray one more time? Let's do it. Jesus, 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 mm. thank you. Thank you for being present with us, for not giving up on this place. I just pray for everybody in this room. I know there's a reason we all need to hear what you want to say to us this morning. But it's difficult for all sorts of different reasons for us to actually hear it, let alone believe it. And so right now, just begin to soften us, open us up so that it can get through, so that your grace can do a new work in us. That's what we want. That's what I want so bad. So speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love, I love music. I love it. Not very good at it. I'm tone deaf. If, you, if you've been standing next to me during worship, you're like, amen. <laughs> tone deaf. I'm not good at music. I was like the only kid in grade school that could not learn. Mary had a little lamb on the recorder. Remember the little plastic flute thing? Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't get that. Like, I think I failed it. I think I failed the recorder. That's even possible. I'm not good at music, but I love it. Like, I feel music. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I just feel it. And recently, 
I've been like kind of sort of getting into classical music. Because I'm impressed. You know, music back in the day, it would actually tell a story. Did you know that? With the sounds, all the different movements to it, and the, and the reasons why, you know, the, the, the music does what it does. It's brilliant. It's genius. And, and my new favorite is, is, a, is something called the Cello Suites by Bach. Make some noise if you heard of that song. Yeah? Yeah, I read somewhere that it is believed to be one of the most complicated and profound pieces of music ever written. Am I right about that? I read that somewhere. So apparently it's on the interwebs. Has to be true, right? No, but they say it's super complex, and, and not very many people can actually play it well. In fact, here's a recording of a five-year-old trying to play the cello suites by Bach. Listen to this. Here it comes. He's five, right? It's impressive. But is it like that easy to listen to? Nah. It's not very smooth. Are you with me? But he's five years old, so we can give him some love for that, right? Yeah, we can give him some love. Go ahead and clap for him, even though he's not here. Thanks, random five-year-old somewhere. But, I mean, if that was like the only version of the cello suites, you probably wouldn't be all that impressed, right? You'd be like, eh, it's okay. Now I want don't, don't play it yet, but now I want you to listen to the cello suites from the master himself, Yo-Yo Ma. You ever heard of Yo-Yo Ma? You know, when I first heard of Yo-Yo Ma, I thought he was a rapper. He's not. <laughs> How many of y'all did too, though? Uh-huh. Admit it. No, he's like the greatest cello player of all time. Listen to him. Play the cello suites by Bach. Y'all, we live in a world where people make music like that. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. Five-year-old, good job. But Yo-Yo Ma, come on. But it's funny how that works, right? Like, you can have a beautiful piece of music, but if a musician doesn't play it well, it doesn't sound all that beautiful, does it? Now, is that an issue with the music or the musician? musician, right? See, our faith, the way of Jesus, is some really beautiful music. In fact, I would argue that it is the most beautiful music, but it's not easy to play. It's not easy to play, and we get it wrong a lot, don't we? We mess it up, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still some really beautiful music, I mean, this gets to the heart of what I hope this series would be for us. We're actually wrapping this up next week. But we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed. It is the oldest and most widely accepted profession of faith in the church. And the subtitle for this series, in case you forgot, has been, What's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? And the hope or the goal of this series isn't to water down what it means to be a Christian, but to clarify it. Right, to get back to the essentials. Because what can often happen is there's all this extra 
that gets added onto the faith. And it can get in the way. Am I right? Or all these non-essentials get made to be essentials, and it creates this sort of noise, and it can be hard to hear the music. Are you following me? And so I think one of the things that the creed can do is it can be this really helpful tool for us to sort of tune out some of the noise and get back to the music, to hear it in all of its complexity and depth and simplicity. And here's what I know. I know this because of pastor privilege. There are a lot of us here who have a complicated relationship with the church or maybe faith in general. We've run across some really bad musicians. Am I right? But my hope is that walking through this series, that it could be a helpful reminder that the music is still beautiful. That Jesus is still worth following. And that the church, despite us, can still be a presence of good in the world. That's been the heart and soul behind this whole series. And so today, we've made it all the way to the line, to the confession, that talks about the forgiveness of sins. Here's what we're going to be getting into today. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's the next line in the creed. Remember that word for belief in the creed. It's not talking about intellectual certainty. It's talking about your heart. I open my heart to. I set my heart on. I'm willing to trust in the forgiveness of sins. I think this is one of the most beautiful parts of the song. I'm going to beat this metaphor to death. But it's also one of the parts that a lot of bad musicians love to mess up. You know, throughout the series, what I've tried to do each week is, is sort of come to the creed and pretend like it's the first time that I'm hearing it. It's like the first time I'm coming across these sort of concepts, these confessions in the creed, and then just pay attention to how I react to it, right? Like, if this were the first time I was hearing this, how would I sort of react to it, right? And when I do that with this part of the creed, I notice that I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about it. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I'm kind of skeptical, sort of cautious about it. It's like I can believe that God forgives sins, but I don't think God's all that into it. At least not that excited about it. Like he just sort of does it kind of begrudgingly. Fine, I'll forgive you if I have to, but I really don't want to. Am I the only one that feels that way? Like when it comes to God's forgiveness. It's like sure God will do it, but he's going to make sure you feel really bad about it first. There's going to be a lot of blood and guts involved. But eventually we'll get there. You know, it's like if I were to sort of say this part of the creed, put it in my own words, maybe it'd sound something like this. I believe in a God who every once in a while has a good day. And if I'm lucky enough, and if God sees me beat myself up enough, then God may just for a moment share some meager scrap of grace with me. But only if I don't accept it too freely or enjoy it too much. I mean, can anybody else relate to this? I mean, just be honest for a second. Has anybody else sort of picked this up along the way? It's like God's stingy with forgiveness. He'll give it, but man, sort of grit in his teeth. But what I hope we'll see this morning is that we'll get, not just intellectually, but so, so many of us say, yeah, I believe in this, but like really, like get it in here. That this couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to God and God's forgiveness. I mean, the God behind all of this is, is into forgiving. He's all about forgiving. That's his thing. He loves it. So much so that as we begin to unpack this this morning, I promise, I promise, some of us in this room are going to think it sounds too good to be true. 
And it's going to make some of us uncomfortable. It's going to go further than maybe we've ever gone before. And when we start, so for some reason, when we feel like something's too good to be true, what do we assume? Well, then it's not. I mean, sometimes I wonder when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God and our faith, what if instead, when we actually start to feel like this is too good to be true, what if that's a sign that we're getting closer to the real thing? It's going to make some of us uncomfortable this morning, and I'm okay with that because I love you too much. Here's where I want to start. I want to start by going back to this moment from Luke 23 that my mom just read for us. Jesus, in this moment, is being crucified. Crucified. Still to this day, crucifixion is the most brutal form of capital punishment human beings have ever come up with. I mean, it was perfectly designed to keep people alive as long as possible and to be in the most pain as, as long as possible, to keep it going. Right? So he's being crucified. He's excruciating, and he's hanging there. And there's this crowd of people gathered around him because crucifixion has gathered a big crowd back in the day. And we're told that the crowd is sneering at him. They're mocking him. They're saying, you saved other people. Let's see if you can save yourself. Now, what's really heartbreaking for me to think about, just a few days ago in the story, these same people were so excited about Jesus showing up. A lot of them were. We were told that they lined the streets. They, they believed that he could be the guy, their guy, the Messiah. I mean, they were celebrating his arrival into the city, but he disappointed them. And they changed their mind about him real quick. Has that ever happened to you? Man, some people love you until you disappoint them, and then what happens? You ever, you ever felt that? I mean, so many of these same people. We're there, waving palm branches, you know, shouting, Hosanna, this is our guy. And then he didn't do for them what they wanted him to do, and now they want him dead. I mean, he's hanging up there, and he's seeing all of this. And then we're told the soldiers are down there trying to divide up his clothes by casting lots. They're playing dice for his clothes while he's up there, sort of hanging there. And then you got to believe there are all sorts of people, just random people, just kind of walking by, who, you know, sort of stop and look at it and then just go on about their business, sort of indifferent to the whole thing. And there's Jesus hanging there on the cross, looking out at this mass of humanity, and he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I feel that. Is that what you'd say? We just feel that, though. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. What's so important for us to get, I think this is the most important thing for us to get, is that in this moment, Jesus is not trying to convince God of something with this request. He's not arguing here with God. Instead, he's revealing something to us about God. This is so important, y'all. This is so important, but it is very difficult for us. In this moment, Jesus is not acting as an agent of change on God the Father. That's how often the cross gets presented to us, though, doesn't it? Right? The cross is the thing that God did in order to get us off the hook with God. That's the sort of dominant way of thinking about the cross in our part of the world, in the West. This never caught on in the eastern part of the church, by the way. And this has been the most dominant way of thinking about the cross for the last 500 years. Before that, this was not the most dominant way of thinking about the cross. But it is for us. This is the sort of culture that we live in. And it, the argument goes sort of like this. God is holy and perfect, right? And because of that, he cannot be in the presence of sin. But you and I, we're sinful. Problem. 
So if God's going to be in our presence, he's either going to die from it and be destroyed, or God's got to take out his anger on somebody else. And so Jesus steps in and takes on God's wrath so that we don't have to. This is the most dominant way of understanding the cross. But it's missing the point. Now, did the cross have to do with our sins? Yes. Yes. It certainly did. But this fixation with appeasing God's wrath, it goes too far and it messes up the music in some really unhelpful ways. Let's start with this. We always got to start with this. We always have to. Jesus is what God looks like. You hear me? I mean, that's the most fundamental conviction of a Christian. If you're in this room and I say, hey, are you a Christian? Yep. The first thing that means that you believe is that God behind all of this looks like Jesus. Not just a little bit. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 tells us, says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Speaking of Jesus. So it's not just he's like a little bit of God. <laughs> What's it say? All his fullness dwells in God. Jesus is what God looks like. That's so important. See, often what we do is we start with our own idea of God, and then we say Jesus is that. That's not radical enough. What you have to do is start with who Jesus reveals God to be and then rethink your idea of God around that. Are you tracking me? So Jesus is what God has to look like. John chapter 1 calls him the Word. He's the Word become flesh. He was with God in the beginning. He, I love the idea of Word. You know what that means? Jesus is what God has to say. That's what that means. I mean, he is the fullest picture of what God is like. And we got to get this because the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your image of God. It won't. We live into it. We shape our gods and our gods shape us. It's the truth of it. So, so this idea that the cross is primarily about appeasing God's wrath, dealing with God's anger, let's just ask the question, is this consistent with the God that Jesus reveals to us? No. No. I mean, the God that Jesus reveals to us over and over again isn't some angry God who needs to shed, shed some blood in order to tolerate us. I mean, over and over again, Jesus reveals a God who loves to dump grace all over the place. Reckless with it. I mean, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, which this passage comes out of, and there's this part in the middle of the book where he tells these three parables in a row. And he's trying to drive this point home. Right? In the first two parables, he likens God to a sheep who has all these, or a shepherd, sorry, a sheep who has shepherds. That's funny. A shepherd who has all these sheep, right? And, and one out of a hundred is lost. And what's that shepherd do? He goes after it. He finds it. And then once he finds the sheep, what does he do? He throws a party. He celebrates. He doesn't ridicule the sheep, which that would be really funny, right? He doesn't give him a lecture. And the next parable, it's this woman who has these coins, and she's missing one. And what does she do? Oh, it's one. I got 99. Who cares? No, she tears her house apart looking for this coin. And when she finds the coin, she celebrates. She throws a party. I mean, the third one is the one that we're most familiar with, isn't it? Parable of the lost son. Man, talk about a story. That one's endured. The younger son, what's he do? He squanders his dad's inheritance. He goes and he spends it all on wild living. And while he's in this foreign country, he comes to his senses and he realizes this is, this is a mess. I don't want this. And he says, if I go back home, I'm going to just tell my father, if you can take me back, I'll just be one of your servants. You don't have to welcome me back into the family. I'll work in the stalls. I'll do all that. He's got this big rehearsed apology going on, right? But Jesus tells this story and he says, when the father saw him from still a long way off, what's he do? 
He runs out there. And before the son can even start with the apology, he says, shh, let's throw a party. Y'all, is this sinking in? I mean, this is who Jesus says God is. This is who Jesus, this is what Jesus says God is like. It's a God who's not stingy with grace. In that story of the prodigal son, did the father's attitude towards the son ever change? No. It was always, you're my son. You're welcome here. You're wanted here. This is who Jesus reveals God to be. Does this sound like a God who needs to kill someone in order to tolerate us? I don't think so. I mean, even this idea that God's holiness prevents him from being in the presence of sin. Jesus totally throws that out too. Who Jesus spend time with? Sinners. Whole bunch of sinners. <laughs> he ate dinner with them. He touched them. He hung out with them. I mean, Jesus takes that idea of holiness and totally just throws it out the window. Who says God can't be in the presence of sin? Because Jesus was in the presence of sin. See, the cross was not about Jesus changing God's mind about us. We say it like this all the time, don't we? The cross was about Jesus changing our mind about God. Throughout human history and in civilizations all over the world, you find this practice of temple sacrifice. It's all over the place throughout ancient history. It's this way for people to deal with their guilt, to offer something of value to appease the anger of the gods, to sort of get them back on their side. The beautiful thing is with Jesus and the cross, all of this gets reversed. Who offers the sacrifice? God does. God does. It's his way of saying, man, if anybody needs to bleed, I'll do it. It's radical. It's radical. And you know, this sort of good cop, bad cop routine, you know what I'm talking about. It's right, like God's the, God's the bad cop. He's just super mad at you for all the bad things you've done. He's got a list of all of it, and he just wants to destroy you, right? But then we sell Jesus as the good cop. Oh, good for you. Jesus comes in, and he sort of works out this weird loophole with God, and now you're good, right? That's a really great way to make converts and pack churches. It's because what do we do? We inject people with fear, and then, oh, by the way, we're the ones with the solution. So, you know, if you need it, come hang out with us, right? That'll pack churches, but how much damage are we doing to people? I mean, like on a spiritual level. It's like there's this sort of spiritual post-traumatic stress disorder that kicks in, you know? It's like God is so mad. We sell this picture of a God who can't wait to destroy you, right? And we're terrified. But then, it, oop, here comes Jesus. And we love Jesus. Whew. Thank you, Jesus, right? You're the good guy. We love you. But then in the back of your mind, there's this residue, isn't there? I can't tell you how many people I talk to who've grown up in the church and don't tell me, you know what, I just never felt like God actually likes me. The residue hangs around, doesn't it? What do you do when you mess up? What's the first thing? You hide it, don't we? We keep it to ourselves. We beat ourselves. Why? Where's that come from? Where's that come from? Fear. Shame. It's this residue. Because we have not been fully converted to the truest thing there is about being a Christian. God looks like Jesus. God looks like Jesus. You know, for a lot of us, God is just his big finger pointing us all the time, accusing us all the time. That is not the God revealed to us in Jesus. According to the scriptures, that's the Satan. 
know what the word Satan means? The accuser. The accuser. See, working out your faith has a lot to do with putting God and Satan in their proper place. <laughs> sort of discerning which voices in your head you need to listen to and which ones you need to tune out. The God revealed to us in Jesus is anything but stingy when it comes to forgiveness. And what's really wild is when you consider how the New Testament authors understood the scope of God's forgiveness revealed to us in Jesus. This is the part I was telling you about. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable. But this sounds too good to be true. I want to read to you a couple passages. There are a lot of them that say similar things. But I'm just going to share with, with you just, just these two for now. And I want you to just pay attention to how big the forgiveness is. Like the scope of it. Like pay attention to who gets forgiven. Who the forgiveness is for. Right? See if you can hear it. First one comes from 1 John chapter 2. This is a passage that I feel like I read every three weeks or so to y'all because I love it so much. 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What's funny is here, here's one of those points where it looks like Jesus is convincing God, right? We have an advocate with the Father. An advocate was a defense attorney. So people are like, here, look, see? Jesus is arguing for us with God. But in this picture, who's the judge? What's the word? An advocate with who? Father. The judge is a father who sent the advocate in the first place. Think about how funny that is. So it's like God and Jesus arguing about if they, we should forgive him. Should we? Yeah, we should forgive him. I want to forgive him too. There's no convincing here. I mean, think about that. It's beautiful. But then listen to this last part. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but what? But also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. God, I love that. Whose sins are being atoned for? Whose sins are being covered over? Just ours? Just those of us who were in? Those of us who have believed and said the magic words? The sins of what? The whole world. Do you see how big that is? Do you see the scope of it? And then this one from 2 Corinthians. Man, I could do a whole series on this passage. Whew. But pay attention again to the scope of the forgiveness. Verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Amen. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now listen to this. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Who's God reconciling to himself through Jesus? Just a handful of us who happen to go to church regularly and who've said the prayer and professed. No, who is God reconciling to himself? The whole world. Whose sins is God not counting against them? People's. It's <laughs> sort of general, isn't it? Everybody's. God is not holding anybody's sin. Think about that. And that's making some of us uncomfortable, isn't it? But there are passages after passages that say similar things. And we're going to get into this some more on the podcast this week. If you haven't listened to the podcast yet, check out this week, because I promise you, it's probably going to get spicy, okay? There's a lot here to unpack. But, but it's passages like this that have led people to hold to a position that we now call Christian universalism. Y'all heard of this? Have you heard of this term before? Don't, don't 
get it confused with pluralism. That's different. Pluralism says that every religion is basically saying the same thing, right? That everybody's trying to do the same thing. Sometimes the image is like uh, every religion is like trying to go up the same mountain but taking different paths. That's pluralism. That's not universalism. Universalism holds on to the uniqueness of Jesus and affirms and says, hey, Jesus is who saves us, who makes us right with God. The work of Jesus is what accomplishes that. What universalism says, though, is that in the end, when it's all said and done, in the very end, everybody will be won over by the grace of God. Everybody will be reconciled with their creator. In the end, hell will be empty. That's what universalism says. That's the claim of universalism. This term was all over the place in some Christian circles back in 2011 when a pastor by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. Y'all remember that? In this book, he explored some of the evidence in the scriptures for universalism, and he was labeled a heretic for it. And he was blacklisted by pastors and church leaders. He's no longer pastoring. I don't even know if he considered himself part of the church anymore. It was intense. It was intense. See, it seems that a lot of Christians have a hard time with the idea of hell eventually being empty. We seem to really like that part. Part about, you know, we're the people who are right. Everybody else is wrong. And they're going to fry one day. We seem to love that part. You start to challenge that and people get mad. Which I got to ask, if you're bothered by hell being less populated than you thought, You might need to sit with Jesus for a while on that. You know, I'm not saying I'm a universalist. Don't go tweeting or whatever you do, whatever. I don't know. But I'll say it like one of my favorite pastors says, Brian Zahn. He says this. He says, I'm definitely a universalist sympathizer. (laughs) I like that. I hope it's true. It's possible. And that's the thing I want to say. I want to make make this clear because I I can't stand the way it's presented sometimes. It feels so, it's so fear-driven. You don't have to be a universalist to be an Orthodox Christian, okay? But you can be. That is an option. You can be a universalist and believe that in the end, everybody will be made right with God. You can believe that and be an Orthodox Christian. I want to make that clear. It's a possibility. We'll talk some more about it on the podcast this week. So again, tune in if you want to check it out. Where am I at? I don't know. Here we go. I'm going to wrap it up. Because listen, God isn't stingy with forgiveness, y'all. God is not stingy with forgiveness. God doesn't offer it to us begrudgingly. We don't have to beg for it in order to get it. Because here's the thing. It's already yours. It was yours before you asked for it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Think about that. And so what I want to finish with, I just want us to consider the beauty of a life that trusts this. I can't prove it to you intellectually, but let's just consider, what would a life look like that really believed this? I believe that they were forgiven by God. I was going to turn the corner and talk about how we're supposed to forgive other people because that's implied in this too. I love it. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but we believe what? In the forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about that on the podcast. I got a lot of extra this week, Thomas. It's for you, buddy. But I just want to sit here with this. Forgiveness for ourselves. You see, I think trusting this part of the creed, what it does is it frees us up to actually deal with our stuff. 
our junk. And what I so appreciate about our faith is that it takes our sin seriously. Our rough edges, our dysfunction, our destructive behaviors. Our faith tells the truth about us. That we aren't okay. It doesn't ignore or trivialize our sin or explain it away. Our faith is one that wants to drag it all up, wants to call it out and put it to death. And, and being a pastor and working with people and actually getting involved in their situations, I'm realizing more and more how important this is. Because it doesn't lessen the severity of our sin or our guilt. It doesn't trivialize it or dismiss it. It recognizes the weight and reality of it. Because there, there are all these voices in, in culture that seem to suggest that the problem with guilt is that we pay attention to it. You know, they just tell us, oh, it's all okay. You don't need to feel bad about anything. Just blow it off and move on. Distract yourselves. Buy more stuff. Do more things. Just, just kind of keep going. You don't need to feel bad about anything. Don't let anybody make you feel bad about anything. There's a lot of voices like that. The problem with guilt is that we actually feel it. Ah, I spend way too much time with people to believe that. To believe that guilt is just a figment of our imagination. There's real weight to it, y'all. There's real weight to some of the shame and guilt that we carry. And it doesn't need to be dismissed or ignored. It needs to be absolved. It needs to be seen and recognized, named, and then forgiven. That's what the cross is about. Jesus took it all. He took it all. It said that he was made to be sin. Every sin human beings were going to ever commit somehow becomes one thing and it gets put on Jesus and Jesus takes it on himself. Your sin has been dealt with. Do you remember Thomas Kincaid? How many of you grew up in your evangelical church? Remember Thomas Kincaid? He was an artist. He was like everywhere when I was growing up. Every Christian bookstore was like Thomas Kincaid everywhere. He's one of the most successful artists of all time. His net worth was like $70 million when he died. No artist does that. You realize artists, you know, they tend to die poor, right? It's not until later. He was one of the first ones. He had like this deal with Lazy Boy. Remember, like, you could buy a Lazy Boy and get a Thomas Kincaid picture thrown in, right? But if you see some of his artwork, it might be familiar to you. Can we put that one up there? This is like Thomas Kincaid stuff. He's known as the artist of light. That was his, that was his nickname. And evangelicals loved him. I mean, he's all about this kind of stuff. And he put light everywhere. Put that next one up. Even, even like pictures that took place in the evening time, this is, a, this is like Santa's workshop. Hmm, Christmas is coming. But even look at the light coming out of the windows. It's almost supernatural, right? He, he loved to paint these images of light. In fact, in one interview... Uh, he said that he wanted to paint a world with no sin, no darkness, no shadows. And I find it so interesting that his art was so popular with so many American Christians. Because I, I think it says something about the veneered spirituality that we're all drawn to. One that presents itself to be spiritual is to have it all together. If you want to be good with God, you got to stay in the light and ignore the dark. And earlier this year, a documentary about Thomas Kincaid was released called Art for Everyone. He tragically died of alcohol and valium poisoning. It has some secrets. And the thing that 
actually inspired the documentary was something that the family discovered after his death. His daughters found a secret vault in his home that nobody knew about. And inside that vault was something like 6,000 paintings that nobody had ever seen. And they weren't full of light. They were dark. And they were twisted. Here's one I actually found. They're hard to get. Go back to that first picture. You got it? Let's look at that. Let's look at the last one. Big difference. I think it's so tragic this man felt like he had to keep this part of himself locked away in a vault. What's in your vault? What is it? Because we all have one. (laughs) We do. God isn't afraid of it. You can lock it up as much as you want. God already knows about it. And get this. He's already forgiven you for it. He's already forgiven you for it. You're forgiven. Man, so many of us, our self-regard, how we think and feel about ourselves is shackled to something in the past. And so it's cemented in regret. It's stuck there. Right? How we feel about ourselves, so much of it is influenced by this thing that we did. Or this thing that we didn't do. And it just stays stuck. Like maybe it has to do with the thing that we did or said that we wish we could undo and take back. Like you think about that person and all you think about is the harm that you caused them. And some of us, it's the opposite. We, we resent ourselves for allowing ourselves to be the victim of somebody or something. Right? We dropped our guard. We got taken advantage of and we beat ourselves up for it constantly. Or maybe for you, the resentment you have towards yourself isn't about something you did or said, but it's about how you feel towards somebody or a group of somebody. We hate ourselves for how we felt about our loved one's struggle with addiction or mental health. Or how we felt about our family's dysfunction. You want to be more tender and compassionate, but you can't and you hate yourself for it. Then, of course, our guilt and shame can come from not what we did or said, but from what we didn't do or didn't say, the risks we didn't take, the times we didn't show up or follow through. It's like, if I would just would have, fill in the blank. What's in your vault? What is it? Because here's the good news. In Jesus, whatever it is that's keeping you locked up has been covered over. It's been taken care of by Jesus. Work on the cross. Your sins have been atoned for. You've been forgiven. God knows about it. And in Jesus' name, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And I'm telling you, if you could just open up your heart and trust that, if you could just begin to consider the fact that God doesn't hold any of that against you, then I think you'll begin to find that you don't have to hold any of that against you. It's been sent away. Our forgiveness, it's true already. It's true already. But we experience the reality of our forgiveness through confession. It's already true. But you experience it by confessing. And getting honest. The New Testament word for confession is this word, exolamago. So fun to say. But it literally means to say the same thing. That's what the word means, to say the same thing. It means to line up the story we've been telling ourselves 
with the story of our reality. We tell the truth about ourselves. And so I want to finish this morning by making some space for us to do just that. To confess. To put some words to something, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time. Because forgiveness, even for ourselves, can be like that. It takes time. And there's layers to it. But what I want to do is we're going we're gonna to finish by praying through the prayer of confession that we use before communion. But before we do that, I just want to give you some space to open the vault, so to speak. Let's just move into a, a kind of quiet. Can we just be quiet? Can you all just sort of bow your heads and just create some space? What I want you to do right now is I just want you to be honest about something. Like I said, it might be the first time. Like the first time that you actually allow yourself to be honest about this. Just, I want you to put some words to it. So here, I'm going to ask you a question. And let's invite the Spirit to bring something to mind as an answer to this question. But I'm going to give you a few moments to be quiet. It's okay. <laughs> Is there anything in your life, any moment any act, is there any broken relationship where you deeply struggle to believe that God would forgive you? And if something has come to mind, I just want to invite you just to whisper it. It can just be a word. You don't have to give a whole bunch of details, but just say, say something about it. Say it out loud. And now let's pray this prayer together. Let's confess our sins against God and against our neighbor together. Say these words out loud with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Now hear this good news. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. You are loved. You're included. You're forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if something came to mind, it's the first time you've put words to it, hallelujah. <laughs> You're forgiven for that. Maybe you want to talk about it. That's what I'm here for. Hit me up. We'll chat. Maybe it didn't come to mind yet. That's okay. Things like this take time, right? But keep going back to the prayer.
Keep going back to the prayer. One of the, I think, the most essential practices we have to make time for if we're going to grow at all is bringing ourselves as honest as we can into the presence of God and letting God love us anyway. Bring it all. Bring all your ugly. Be honest about it. Maybe you don't even want to be there with God. Tell him that. I don't want to be here with you. But I'm here. Let God love you anyway. If you make time for that, I promise you, things begin to shift. Things begin to turn. We begin to change. We begin to grow. It's too good to not be true. Amen? Church, thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week.